Yes, indeed. We are back aboard with another edition of the Last Word on Sports Media podcast. I'm the somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. We have got the dog days of summer going on, but that doesn't mean that we have a shortage of subjects to talk about. And I've got a special guest that's going to be with me straight away. Post haste, forthwith, as I like to say. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking with Nelson Luis, who is the vice president of communications for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But that ain't the whole story. No, no, no. Uh, winning a Super Bowl as part of the organization with Tom Brady ain't the whole story. Uh, if I say the name Yao Ming, you would probably know who that is. If I say the name Tiger Woods, you definitely know who that name is. And this man has worked with all three in the media relations field. So I look forward to talking with him and exchanging some fun stories with my man, Nelly, coming up here in just a few moments. Thank you for finding us. However, you've done so on the Last Word on Sports Media podcast feed. Uh, again, we are here every week, midweek with this podcast. George Offman shares the podcast feed. His Tell Me a Story I Don't Know podcast features a different interview subject every week, usually a Chicago theme. Doug Blanville, the former Cubs outfielder, now turned broadcaster uh, with ESPN, ESPN Radio, and the Cubs Marquee Network. He's the guest this week. And Phil DeMont Mullen and Mike Gill with the Announcer Schedules podcast come later in the week. They break down who does it well on the national level, radio and TV with the Announcer Schedules podcast. Hear all of that on this podcast feed. However, and wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, follow and subscribe. With that out of the way, plenty of media takes in a bit about the conclusion of Wimbledon, the British Open this week, the baseball's back resume, football training camp's about to be here. My Lord, that's a great segue because this is the week before the mayhem and the blur. And I'm going to say up front about five different times, thank you. Thank you, Nelson Luis, who is going to join me right now for being willing to spend part of your final week really of freedom before the mayhem, <laughs> Nelson, and the chaos of training camp and preseason, and then the regular season gets underway. So thank you. It's great to have you, and I look forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Happy to help you be out a little bit here, TJ, and uh, looking forward to uh, – it, it will be upon us here very quickly. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the start of training camp, but you're right. I am trying to enjoy a few of those days here before uh, we get into the, uh, you know, into the, the track there and, and start running. Uh, no doubt about that. And I should say, uh, Nelson and I go back some 25-plus years when he worked for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the media relations the first time in the mid-1990s, then went to work for the PGA Tour, then went to work for the Houston Rockets and the NBA, all dealing in media relations. Now back with the Buccaneers uh, since uh, 2013 and now as the Vice President of Communications. Um, and, I, and I just want to publicly say, uh, a lot of times, Media people don't say thank you. Uh, they should say thank you. You guys do an amazing job of keeping everything straight and mostly accommodating what everybody wants, and that ain't easy. So I'm just publicly shouting out to you because you take care of me far more times uh, than, than you say no. You say yes, we can do this. We can make it work. This is the guy that helps make it work in the Buccaneer Wars. So I'm just I'm publicly propping you up, my friend. This is uh, I appreciate this is that. Uh, this is a good thing. Good, good, good way to get started. <laughs> yes. So let's do get it started. Um, is this this is fun for me to ask these kind of questions? Did you always want to do media relations, sports information, something like that, or did you think you were going to be doing something else? I don't know this answer, so I want to find out along with the podcast audience. Yeah, no, you know, for, for me, I knew pretty much from my sophomore year in college uh, that I wanted to do something in, in sports. Uh, I'd always been a big sports fan. I grew up in Tampa, so most of my life, actually, the majority of my life has been spent in Tampa. Um, I grew up, I was born and raised in Tampa. I was a Buccaneer fan. 
Uh, and quite frankly, I'll be honest with you, I, my, my goal was to be the Bucks director of public relations. So uh, at the time, that was Rick Odioso, who you know very well. Yes. Um, and when I was in college, uh, you know, I looked up to Rick and um, was able to get an opportunity to sort of get my foot in the door with the organization through another friend of mine that had gotten an internship with the Buccaneers. Uh, and that allowed me to get to know Rick a little bit. And, uh, you know, but I knew from from early on in college days that I wanted to do something in sports PR. It's either that or go into uh, the newspaper industry. And I think I made a, a wise decision <laughs> as we've come to realize here 30, you know, 30 years later. Um, you know, it's that, that that's an industry that's been going through a lot of uh, tumultuous times here. And you know, it's a difficult time for a lot of folks in that business. But um super happy to be here and to be with uh, ultimately with the team that that I that I was born and raised with and, and love. And so you and I are intertwined for this reason, that long before I got to work on the Buccaneer broadcast and be part of all the game coverage and all the different stuff, uh, this will be year 19 for me on the game coverage. But Nelson, I don't even know if you know all this with the bio and whatnot. I've been on or off the game broadcast for 24 seasons, five other seasons besides these 19. But long before all of that, I was a fan when the Buccaneers were terrible. You and I are the same age. They were awful in the 80s. It was tough to be a fan. John McKay to Lehman Bennett to Ray Perkins and the odyssey that continued. Now, you were part of the resurgence of the team. So tell me about that quickly. What's it like? You're living out a dream to work in the public relations department in the late 90s, and the Buccaneers suddenly get good with Tony Dungy and the new uniforms and the whole bit. From the standpoint of a job, the media attention, you're now playing on national TV a bunch, Monday Night Football a bunch, you're in playoff games. What was that like from what you recollect? Well, I can tell you this. I, you know, I, I enjoyed my time with uh, with Sam Weiss, my, my first couple of years there uh, with the Buccaneers. Uh, Tony Dungy, though, came in and he he's just uh, to me on an, on another level uh, in terms of the kind of person that he was, the kind of coach and leader that he was. Um, so it was really great to see, again, a team that I grew up loving and watching um, that had really struggled for so many years. Um, to come off of that and then to sort of get this breath of fresh air with Tony Dungy and um, all the things that started happening there with the drafting of the, obviously we'd already drafted um, Sapp and Brooks, but, you know, the continuation of, of getting some really important players and uh, seeing the, the group develop. And it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was so fun to, to be on the inside uh, when we finally got to enjoy some of those good times here, those early good times that really uh, set the uh, the foundation for that first Super Bowl win. No doubt. Uh, and he deserves and, a tremendous and of course amount of credit. I, and I have to say, my timing was was great and terrible because I was here when Tony came in, and then I left the Buccaneers to go, as you're probably going to talk about here in a few minutes, uh, to the PJ Tour, and I did that in April of 99. So I missed – uh, the first uh, Super Bowl, uh, all all the great times leading up to that, but it was still awesome getting to to experience the uh, the foundation of that team. The phrase we use: the culture had been changed and was being changed by Dungy, by Monty Kiffin, by those players, including Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks, John Lynch, Mike Allstott, that core of different guys, Hardy Nickerson as well. They changed it around, um, and, and the Bucks began to have success and eventually won a Super Bowl. But as you mentioned. You then ventured to the PGA Tour at a guy at a time when a guy by the name of Tiger Woods, Eldrick Tiger Woods, had burst upon the scene in 1996 as a professional after dominating amateur golf, had won some tournaments at the end of 96, and then the amazing conquering at Augusta National launched him into 
the solar system in terms of popularity. So you get there in 1999, you're you're almost at the full height of his greatness of winning major championships. Uh, again, what was that like to come out of the football media relations background and go into the world of golf, which is not a team sport, you're dealing with individuals, and you've got one of the greatest golfers of all time, as it turns out, who was just on fire at the time that you're there. What do you recollect on that as well? Yeah, no, that that was an amazing time. Uh, you know, for me, obviously, in my in my personal life and my career, uh, I had made a decision to leave the Buccaneers, which I never thought I would do. Uh, but it was a great opportunity to explore the world, and and you know the PJ Tour is an international uh, you know brand, so I, I was able to travel throughout, um, and to, and to hit the ground running there, uh, and have Tiger Woods, like you said, on that ascent that he was on, uh, was an amazing time. I was um, someone who was you know I was a casual golf fan. I was a I was I was casually interested in golf before I took that job. Uh, so it was, as you can imagine, when you become a media official on the PJ tour and people are coming to you and looking for answers and questions that, that you've got to research back in those days, it wasn't as easy as just getting on your laptop and, and firing things up. You had to dial in, uh, on the internet, which was the, <laughs> the interweb or whatever we called it back in those days. But, um, you know, it, it was, it was quite a bit of, uh, of hard work just trying to get myself up to speed. And then of course you find yourself in the middle of something like that. Now I wasn't the only, media official obviously that worked with tiger he had kind of a couple of more established media uh, officials that were working with him and then i would be some you know there were three of us that were working the pj tour so you would be on a rotation and sometimes you would find yourself um in a situation where you'd be there and you'd be the one that's bringing tiger in to uh to do interviews and things of that nature the one thing about tiger um i i, I always enjoyed my interactions with them they were always pretty businesslike and straightforward. There wasn't a lot of uh, frills involved. I mean, it was pretty much, you know, get to, to what you need to do. But he was always gentlemanly and nice to me. And, um, you know, obviously you normally are seeing these guys in, on the PGA Tour when you're a media official. You're only usually seeing them when they're, when things are going well because you're, you're asking them to come in and talk to the media after a good round when they're leading the tournament. Uh, so, you know, that that's one of the – I would say that was one of the positives of working on the PGA Tour. You, you really weren't – Checking in with the guys that had a really rough day. You're usually just bringing in the guys that were uh, that were competing well. But he was uh, he was great to me, and and yeah, it was it was awesome to uh, to be there at a time where uh, there was so much attention being focused on on golf and on him specifically, uh, and to be around that and kind of witness it and and be a part of that was was a really special time. And and you're right, it was a huge jump for me in my career, um, going from a sport that I knew very well in football to one that I didn't know very well and just happened to have the probably the number one athlete in the world at that time. And certainly right after you got there, he had the Tiger Slam where he didn't win them in the calendar sequence, but he won every major four in a row uh, starting um, with the U.S. Open in 2000 and going all the way through the 2001 Masters, including the PGA Championship, the Open Championship, or the British Open, as we often call it. Uh, an amazing run. So uh, I'm curious about a couple of things as we bring this back to sports media. Give us an idea even worldwide where you're dealing with international media for the first time, and we're coming to Yao Ming in a little bit, but you're dealing with media in Europe, media in Japan, media in Australia that want to talk to Tiger Woods. Besides just the U.S. media, what what was that dynamic like? And it, and it obviously was great experience on what you were about to get to do with the Houston Rockets. But what was that like? Right. Well, you know, it's funny with with Tiger. Tiger always had a swarm of people around him. You never saw Tiger Woods by himself. Right. And I'm sure you 
to this day, you never see him by himself. There was always his his agent, uh, Mark Steinberg. There was always, you know, uh, PR people, management people. There was always someone that you would have to go through to get to the, to the Tiger if you didn't, if you weren't right in front of him, you know, physically after a round. So a lot of those things would be coordinated through his group. And, his, you know, he was so well insulated that I wasn't necessarily the guy bringing in all these opportunities to him. It was more like working through his intermediaries, which is one of the things that as a pretty young person in the, mm-hmm. in the business at that point, I was 28 going on 29. Um, that was to me something that I had to get used to, right? Like I was used to at the Buccaneers, if you wanted to talk to Warren Sapp, you'd go to Warren Sapp and, 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 and ask him to do whatever, or Derek Brooks or John Lynch or, uh, but when, uh, when you started working with some of these type of celebrities, uh, sports figures, uh, there were some intermediaries that you had to go through because, and I understand it in, in some regards. I mean, if you're Tiger Woods, um, you are getting just astronomical number of requests for your time. And everyone thinks that, oh, it's not, it's it's a five minute thing here. It's a five minute thing there. But those things really add up. So uh, they do need to have some gatekeepers and uh, he had some pretty good ones. <laughs> were you in awe a little bit of, my God, there are 50 or 60 or 70 trying to get around? Because again, in the dynamic, we should explain this, uh, and I'm going to share a little more with you in just a second about working for PGA Tour Radio and getting to be around Tiger and et cetera. But what Nelson was saying, we should reemphasize. So in the dynamic of a pro sport like the NFL or the NBA, the players are in a locker room, the locker room opens up, and then there's access to whomever is in the locker room. The PGA Tour, you don't have access to their locker room to go find them. And generally speaking, most of the time, players after their round, they aren't obligated to talk to the media. And generally, the media isn't looking to talk to them unless they're in contention. Well, Tiger's always in contention. He's always winning. And so you would get behind the ninth green or the 18th green or wherever the interview was. And there's almost fist fights, Nelson, going on for people trying to get up close with their camera. Were you? My question again is, were you kind of in awe of that the first few times you were dealing with it with, my Lord, how many people at the height of this guy's popularity are trying to get around and get a microphone or a recorder in there? Yes. And, you know, so it's funny because I haven't been around the PJ Tour in a number of years, but I, I've gone out to the Valspar Championship a few times here recently and sort of seen their setup now for how they do it compared to how we did it back in the uh, – you know, the archaic days of, of when I was back there. Um, so that that part of it has changed a little bit. But I would say this, um, I've got one pretty good story there that I think uh, you, you'd like to hear. It's, uh, and I'm going to probably butcher the some of the details on the year and stuff, but Tiger was in the midst of a run where he was winning consecutive tournaments. Like every tournament he entered, he, he would win. And he was, he was the middle of a – it was a pretty astronomical feat. And I don't know how many exactly it was. might have been the year 2000. You, you'll probably be able to look that up. But um, – he is in the middle of the streak and what what they'd done was they'd come up with this um sort of you know every tournament would want to have tiger woods come in to do the pre-tournament interview right if if turn if 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 he's in that tournament they're gonna ask hey we got to get tiger woods to come in for pre-tournament interviews and in order for him not to have to do that 27 28 29 times however many times he was going to play uh you know out there on the tour he came to sort of an agreement, which was basically, you know, kind of made sense. It was like if he was a defending champion or if he had never played in the event prior, you know, in, in the event before, he would do a pre-tournament interview. And it seemed to be working pretty well. People kind of understood, okay, we can't ask him to come in and do all these interviews every time he does a tournament. So those were the two qualifiers. He had to either be the pre, the, the the returning champion or the 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 you know first time playing the event. So we get to Pebble Beach, and he has just come off a win. 
Uh, and again, he's got this consecutive start streak. So going. I looked it up. This streak is six consecutive wins from the end of 99 and through 2000, which is around the time you're talking about Pebble Beach and then eventually uh, U.S. Open, et cetera, in 2000. So go ahead. OK, so so my my job now is I've got to check in with them because we have just unprecedented amount of media. It, it's Pebble Beach, first and foremost. But now it's Tiger in the middle of this winning streak. And there are people out of the woodwork coming in for this. And I'm, I'm the primary, uh, one of the two primary uh, media officials working the event. So my charge is to get with Tiger and see if he would commit to sort of break that sort of, you know, gentleman's agreement that, that had been in place about, you know, because he, he didn't fall into those. He wasn't the returning champion and, and he had played Pebble many, many times before. So uh, the first challenge is back in those days again i'm sure it's changed but back in those days uh the first challenge was okay it's pebble beach which course is he going to come in and do a practice round on you know because those guys would come in we would come in on monday and then tuesdays uh would be a practice round wednesday would be a practice round and then thursday you get started so figuring that out where you know where's he going to show up so if i had gotten some intel that i knew where he was going to be he was going to be i think he was going to be coming into because there's three different there's there's different courses there so you're going right. you know and they're not they're not close to each other either <laughs> you got to get in your car and drive you know from one to the other um so i had figured out i knew he was going to be coming in he was going to play pebble beach i think i'm going to say it was a two it was, it was on tuesday it might have been wednesday but um and first thing in the morning is when he was going to be there so I am sitting there and I'm again I'm 29 years old and I'm I'm waiting on the the world's most famous athlete to show up and I'm sitting there and it's completely dark. I am I am at the first tee box waiting. There's nobody out there and almost like a scene from a movie. I'm sitting there and all of a sudden a car drives up and you know if you know Pebble and you know that time of year there's a lot of fog that can kind of come through so there's this mist and this fog and all you see is like these headlights coming through the fog uh, right there. And I can tell it, it, it's Tiger because he's in one of these, uh, you know, the, the PGA tour would, would give the players cars that they would drive around for the week. Uh, and I know it's, it's one of the cars and I know it's him. So he comes out and he's walking through now, you know, again, I'm, I'm going into detail here, but for me, it's still very vivid in my mind. He's, he, he gets out of his car, he, he grabs his bag and he's walking towards, you know, towards the first tee box. I don't even think he's seen me at this point. And all he is right now is just a shadow. You know, it's like the lights are behind him, the fog, and this big shadow coming towards me. And I'm sitting there like, how am I going to get him to commit to do something that he's never done? He, you know, he's – so I'm trying to pick my words. How am I going to – you know, what am I going to say? How am I going to start it off? The whole thing. And uh, he comes and he finally sees me as he's getting close to the to to the thing, and he's – really without without missing a beat without missing a step i mean he's kind of walking and he said hey how you doing what's up nelson i'm like hey tiger how you doing man i said hey look i need to check in with you i need to say i know you have this rule that you don't typically do these interviews but this is a really really big week it's it's just a different animal that we're dealing with this week we've got 150 media people that are going to be here waiting today to talk to you after your practice round um you know what any chance we can get you to go in there and you know he kind of looked at me he thinks about it and he goes you know and, and 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 as I say this, he's still putting on his glove. He's getting the he's getting his first. He's not going to be late on this tee time. Whatever time he had set, he was going to hit it. 
But uh, but he goes, you know, I, I get it, I understand it, but I don't want to make that exception. I, I think we're just gonna have to do it. So so what we would do in those situations was he did agree that he would speak, but he would do it on the 18th green when he was done. So after he was done, he'd go to the 18th, he'd, he'd go behind the 18th green at wherever tournament he was, and he would talk. So I, you know, he goes, he goes, I just don't want to make that precedent. If I do that, then it, you know, becomes harder to do it. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep it. We're just gonna have to do it on the 18th. And with that, he said, "All right, see ya." And took his first hit and off I went trying to figure out how I was going to make this work uh, because it seemed like such a, an impossible task. So the next couple of hours uh, was our job was just to try and figure out how do we do this so that we don't have some sort of, you know, fight breakout on the 18th green when everyone's sitting there trying to get sound bites from Tiger. Um, and we made it work. You know, I mean, I, I worked with some of the, the rules officials and some of the other folks that were there to help set up the course. And we set up some 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 lines and some, you know some rope areas and and kind of uh, did a little bullpen area and, and did the best we could. But um, again, even even when he said no, he was he was a gentleman about it, and you know you didn't walk away feeling upset or anything. It was just sort of like okay, it's gonna make my job a little bit harder today, but you know we'll, we'll figure it out. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Fifty. Then place a five dollar wager on any sport. You'll receive one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc wilson you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer avoiding a 455 meeting on everyone's calendar how did you do it i got a huge assist from grammarly an ai writing partner that helped me make my point 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. And by the way, great stuff here from Nelson Luis. Again, joining me on the Last Word on Sports Media podcast. Uh, I can already tell we're going to have a lot of fun. We haven't even gotten to, Yang, to Yao Ming and Tom Brady yet. But it's well known that whenever he plays a practice round, he's there at O-Dark 30 before the people are there and everybody's there. And he's halfway done before people realize where is he and what's going on. That's always been the case for 25 plus years of him playing on the PGA Tour. Um, and and what you were referring to is he's not going to come in the media center where it's all set up for him to be behind a podium or sitting at a table and everybody's got kind of the equal opportunity to see, to hear what he's saying, to shoot the video. You're talking about the chaos of everybody try to surround him, who's closest to him that can hear him, to ask a question. 
I mean, it is almost inviting a free-for-all, which is what you meant. I knew what you meant, and I've been there. Absolutely. I've been there and watched that uh, with that. Absolutely. So it's, uh, it's amazing. I have often joked, I don't know if I've told you this, too. There was an opportunity when I was working PGA Tour Radio, which is the uh, the coverage and being part of the live coverage and an on-course commentator calling golf shots, that I had an opportunity, I believe, as I recollect, it was in Charlotte, at the at what's now the Wells Fargo Championship, the Quail Hollow Golf Club, it's had several different names. And I followed Tiger Woods one day and called his shots for four and a half hours, Nelson, and got to interview Tiger after his round, and he was in contention. I'm the guy that did the interview for radio. You know, TV talked to him, I talked to him. The next day, I'm following Phil Mickelson. I didn't follow him the whole round, but I followed him in from like about the seventh or eighth hole all the way through the end of his round, calling shots from when we picked up our coverage. And I interviewed Phil. And I have told this story forever and called so many people. I should have retired at that point. How does it get any bigger than following those guys calling golf shots? So I thought Tom Brady coming up. How does it get any bigger than following those guys, calling their shots, interviewing them back to back days? I should have walked off. I should have dropped the mic. I think at that point, can't even do no, that. No, it's, no, that's a pretty good, uh, that's, that's definitely a pretty good back to back. Yeah. So it's just, it's amazing what that crush was. So I want to segue this now because you leave after only being there a couple of years, getting that experience, and you get a great opportunity to go be director of communications for the Houston Rockets, which unfortunately you're not joining the Akeem, Clyde Drexler, Vernon Maxwell, Rudy Tomjanovich, world champion Rockets of the the mid-90s. These are the Rockets that are now floundering, floundering to the point that they get the number one pick. And as it turns out, the number one pick in a lottery, story upcoming, and you end up as a franchise with Yao Ming, an international famous situation now for the Houston Rockets. So first, I know because you teased me and I don't know the story, you were actually in the draft lottery room when it was understood Yao Ming's going to be the number one pick and the Rockets ping pong ball, correct, came up and you knew about it, but were sworn to not be able to tell anybody until the live TV show came off. Uh, for the NBA draft lottery. So tell me that story and what that was like on how the Rockets number one pick, you knew about it. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a really cool uh, opportunity. So yeah, I joined the Rockets uh, in 2001. Actually my last tournament with the, with the end, uh, with the, the golf was nine 11, believe it or not. It was, wow. the, it was here in Tampa. So I was here working in Tampa when that happened. Um, so, but I had already taken the job with the PJ with the, with the Rockets and uh, started there a couple weeks afterwards. So I hit the ground running in, in Houston, and I've got this, uh, you know, this opportunity to, to be with this team. And it's my first opportunity to, to have a, uh, um, you know, my own staff and sort of, you know, be in that role of as a director of a professional sports team. It wasn't the Bucks at that time, but it was still, you know, a, having my own staff. And I get there, and the team is awful. <laughs> I mean, we uh, – I think we lost – at one point we might have lost 15 or 18 games in a row. And in the NBA, when you lose that number of games in a row, that is a really tough sledding because, um, you know, you, you're you playing three, four games in a week sometimes. And, and to have a week where you don't – you know, you don't sniff a win, um, that was pretty rough. But the payoff for that was, um, you know, that we got into the lottery – and I think we had – it was a pretty low – I'd have to check, but I think we had like a 12% chance of winning the lottery as, as, as they had uh, figured out. And we had a um, 
the way that the lottery works, most people probably know this or at least have heard about it. There's, you know, the, the, the ping pong balls actually come up in a room and every team has a representative there. And that's where, that's where it actually happens. I mean, that's where, you know, right then and there. And before you walk into that room, you had to surrender your cell phone because they obviously didn't want you. This, this happens actually, I felt like it was at least over an hour before the actual thing that you see on TV. And that year, Steve Francis was our representative, our celebrity representative on the stage. Um, so, of course, you had no interaction with who was on the stage. And once the ping pong balls came up, everyone in that room was you. you it, and this happened to me, actually. I, I had to go to use the restroom after it had all happened and uh, before they, the TV show had started. And they actually had to walk with me to the restroom to make sure that I wasn't. You had a monitor, uh, you know, you had a monitor right there. Yeah. And if yeah. I'm correct, that's the first time you'd ever been in this situation. This is after your first season being there, your first time to be exposed to it. So is it surreal when that Houston rocket logo ball pops up or whatever code so, they use to determine it was the rockets? What is that moment so like? Here, here's the thing. It's not a ball. It's not one ball. It doesn't have a logo on it. It's numbers. It is like the lottery. It is like playing the the Powerball or the Lotto. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a series of. It's a combination of numbers that that come up. And what they do is you have. I, I forget how many total uh, combinations we had, but what I specifically remember was that um, the sheet that they gave me. You know, everyone sat down classroom style, right? You had all the teams that were in in there all sitting down classroom style, and they give you your sheet with your combinations, you know, your number combinations. And those are sitting there and in front of you. And in my situation, it's, it was like a booklet. So it starts on the, uh, from, from where the rockets were, it started on the bottom, the number of combinations started on the bottom, and then it was continued on the top. Okay. So it wasn't like I was just looking at one little block of stuff here and I'm keeping up. So these, these numbers keep popping up and I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking. And then, and then I see one that I don't see in my, my list of lower combinations. And I'm like, Oh, I was like, oh, man, I can't believe it. it didn't work out. Well, then the next number pops up, and I happened to look up, and I realized, I was like, oh, hold on. I'm still in the game here. That one pops up. I think it was four numbers. I forget what the total mm -hmm. number of numbers was. But when that last one popped up, I just kind of looked at it. Looked. I, it's the only. It's the closest I could ever feel to winning an actual like Powerball lottery uh -huh. for me at that moment as a young guy that's just sitting there, and you realize it's going to change your life. Uh, all of a sudden seeing that, that fourth number, cause right as I figured out, we had the third number, I look up and that fourth number drops and I'm looking at the combination on the top of the next sheet. And it just hit me. And I was like, of course I had to let out a little, a little something <laughs> for the, for the group that was there. Uh, and then it was just sort of surreal, you know, like you're so did there an NBA representative, it's not the commissioner, did an NBA representative say it's the Houston Rockets and confirm it, or you yes. were just left yes. to figure it out. And so that, I mean, it's surreal. Does that describe it aptly? It's exhilarating. Absolutely, absolutely surreal. And there's this moment of just exhilaration. And again, you have, you have enough time in there to really be thinking about how this is going to affect your world as the PR director for this team that's going to have now, you know, at the time, you know, there was, there was talk, is it going to be, is it going to be Yao Ming? Is it going to be Jay Williams? Like there was this big back and forth. Who's going to be first overall pick? Who's going to be the second overall pick? There were a lot of questions about whether you could even get Yao Ming because of he was playing for a Chinese basketball team. And there were a lot of things that had to be worked through the government there and everything else. So there wasn't even a, it wasn't like I was sitting there thinking, oh, it's Yao Ming. It was just the number one overall pick and knowing that we were going to be sort of the, uh, in the spotlight there for, uh, for the NBA uh, all summer long. And, and then, you know, into the draft.
and and then and then sitting around waiting and it's killing you, you right? Can't you can't tell call, anybody. You can't tell anybody. You want to call your general manager. You want to call your president. You want to call your head coach. Uh, and you can't do any of that. And you're just sitting there thinking like, this is crazy. Like I'm sitting here and I, I've got so much, you know, after everyone's congratulated, everyone's kind of sitting there. You're just kind of sitting there like this is about to the funny. Another funny part of the story was we, we assumed we had such a small chances of winning that uh, Steve Francis and I had booked ourselves on a flight into Newark so that we could just go in, do it and then fly back the same night. And I have to stay overnight. It was a very tight window, but we figured, Oh, you know, as soon as this thing is over, we're done. Well, of course, when it gets announced and the it's a it's a TV program, uh, now there's interviews to do for Steve, and he's got to do all these th- different things. And we're in a post nine eleven world right now. Immediately after post nine eleven, so you don't just show up at the airport twenty minutes before your flight. You right. Know, this was an hour and a half of lines and everything. And uh, we ended up after we'd done all the crazy you know media circuit that we had to do, we rushed over there, and we I mean we were able to have them hold the plane for us. For a few extra minutes and when we when steve walked in the door the plane closed i mean it was you know it was that close to us missing our flight um but we were both just on cloud nine i mean we were it, it was such an amazing few hours there that night unreal and again i'm not going to keep him forever i could i love nelson Luis for these stories so now you're dealing again second worldwide star in this case he would become a worldwide star just give me a quick I mean, what was that like to deal with the Chinese media, the international media, all the requests? And if I'm correct, you began to devote a great portion of your time, if not most of your time, to only dealing with the requests and everybody trying to get to Yao Ming besides the rest of the team. So so elaborate on that. No, absolutely. That was uh, that was one of the things that, um, you know, all of a sudden we're a team that, uh, you know, ESPN, uh CNN, uh, you name it. I mean, it wasn't just sports, uh, the Today Show, Good Morning America. Everyone wanted a piece of us because of what it meant and 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 just the stage that we were on. Uh, and it was just such an amazing, you know, we had Rudy Tomjanovich as our head coach. Um, so we had, you know, we had a big time head coach. We bring in this, this player that's got so much international appeal. Um, and there was, you know, again, now I become sort of the, uh, you know, it's it's my job as a gatekeeper to try and figure out what made sense, what didn't make sense. But we were dealing with so many different things. There were so many different obstacles and challenges because, uh, you know, again, we had to make sure that things that he did were were basically OK with him and his team. But also sometimes even, you know, they would check with the Chinese government. And, uh, you know, there were there were so many political things that were that were around that. Um, and And then you had international journalists that were not used to covering uh an athlete in the united states and you know it's a little different over there than it was over here so trying to integrate them and trying to get them into the fold and kind of getting them in line i mean there was a a, one time when you know one of the normal things you would normally do in a basketball situation is you when you would open for media you would let them in at the very end of 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 the the practice and then they would um watch the players kind of doing some of their drills and then uh you know as guys would come off you'd you'd get them and, and have them interact uh, and do their media sessions. And uh, we had an entire, I mean, there was probably a media core of about at this time, early on this first year, maybe 20 Chinese journalists that had wow. some were from mainland China. Yeah. Some were from mainland China. Some were actually based in the U S and were just told you're going to be in Houston the entire year. Um, so about 20 and that's outside of all the, you know, American uh, media that we're dealing with. But 
you know, they're sitting there on their waiting and they're grabbing basketballs out of the basketball bins and, 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 and getting Sharpies and asking, you know, for autographs from players because <laughs> they, the, you know, they, had, again, there were things that you just sort of assume back in those days that, you know, okay, everyone kind of knows the etiquette and sort of the, the rules that we go by. But uh, again, a lot of these people weren't even, some of them weren't even sports reporters. They were just there to report on Yao and they figured, Hey, you know, these basketballs, I'm going to grab one of these and, and see if I can get Yao to sign it. And, you know, so there was just a lot wow. of uh, a lot of things that we had to sort of, um, you know, go over the ground rules for and and try and get everyone. But by the time I was done there with you, I mean, yeah, I think he played maybe eight years, seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we got to know some of those folks really well. Um, they were awesome. But yeah, was an amazing athlete. He he spoke not just in Chinese, uh, you know, after a game, he would he would do a Chinese media session followed by an English media session. So where everyone else was able to get in and out in five minutes after a game, Yao was usually in there for 15, 20 minutes and incredibly gracious. Um, probably, if not one of maybe my favorite athlete I ever worked with just because of who he was. Love those stories. All right, fun ones. I don't know this answer. Did you learn some Chinese, a little bit broken Chinese, just out of just out of being around Yao and having to deal with the Chinese media at all? No, no, I never did. And <laughs> we actually learned a lesson. We, we, you know, I was so excited. The first time we went to China, I could go on for, I, I could probably take right, up right. a whole podcast here, but um, when we went to, prior to drafting Yao, uh, there was a very big meeting that we had to have with the, the, the Chinese Basketball Association and the mayor of Shanghai, which is where, where he played, he played for the Shanghai Sharks. And we, uh, so it was at the last minute, it was going to be uh, uh, Rudy Tomjanovich, Carol Dawson, our general manager, and our general counsel, who was going to be the person in charge of sort of brokering the deal to, to see if we could figure out if we could get Yao. And then we would then make them the first pick. And we're going over there. And at the last minute, they said, you know what, Nelson, you should go. It's going to be a huge deal. You know, going to China, like I didn't have a visa, a passport, all that got done in like three days. I don't even know how they did it, but they got it all worked out. And on the way over to the airport, I thought, you know what, I'm going to buy a few books here and try and figure out just some key phrases for us to be able to throw out there. And I think I opened up that book and within probably 30 seconds, I realized nothing good would come out of us trying to figure out a couple of catchphrases. It was probably just going to create a national incident, an international incident. So I put the books away and I said, guys, we're just going to play the part of the dumb Americans that are just here to say hello. And use where's the interpreter? The interpreter? We were use the interpreter. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what we did. <laughs> Give me a fun, uh, besides the autograph balls by the member, uh, members of the media that you're having to deal with. Give me a give me a fun request because you said, hey, ask me about the Yao Ming requests. You have one that stands out that's odd, that's wild, that somebody's looking to do with the media that you wouldn't normally suspect. Does something stand out from the Yao Ming days with the Houston Rockets? No, I think the the one thing that stood out to me, and it was it wasn't just one, it was it was almost every time we put them out there in a new market. Like every obviously every city we went to in that first year, it was like a circus, right? It was just everywhere you'd go for shoot arounds for a normal shoot around in the NBA, you might get 10 eight to 10 media people with, yeah, we might get 40 people there, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and they're not exactly sports reporters, as I said. Um, but it, it was something that was just like, in some ways I felt sorry for him because it was like, they were asking him questions. Like he was some sort of, you know, circus freak. Like, what do you eat? You know, to, to be that big, what do you eat? What do you drink? What do you, what's your favorite American meat? You know, all those kind of things that became very cliche to us because it was mm-hmm. like, and you know, yeah, was always gracious, but, uh, toward you know after after a while he'd kind of get the eye roll and you know it was kind of like all right you know it's like i'm not going to answer any different than i did the last 20 times i was asked this question and 
Um, but, you know, that was a thing because he was so large and really, you know, you see him on TV and you kind of see him in relation to other large humans and you think, okay, yeah, he's very large. But when you're next to him uh, and you're interacting with him and, and he's sitting down in a chair and I'm looking at him eye to eye standing up, you realize, you know, yes, people can be in awe of someone yes. like that. And, and they will ask goofy questions and, 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 you know, ridiculous things that, uh, you know, I think he got used to it, but he handled like such a champ. I mean, he was just an amazing person in terms of how he dealt with, with all of the pressures. It wasn't just the pressure of performing on the basketball court. It was the pressure of performing for his country sure. and the bridge, the bridge that he was kind of forming between the U S and uh, China. There's, there's a, a documentary, if, you know, if you ever get a chance to see it, if you haven't seen it, it's called year of the Yao. I do have a little bit of a role in there. Uh, I, I, unwittingly, you know, usually our, the PR guys try not, not to get too far into the, uh, on the cameras, but they were following Yao. that first year NBA had worked on a, on a feature film and it was a project that was already in the works when he got here with him. So, uh, we kept it going and they basically would come in and they would just follow us. And it was, it was, you know, in the early days of those kind of, those kind of reality documentaries. Um, but they followed him around and, and did all sorts of things, but it's, it's a, it's a really cool documentary. They used to play it during the all-star break all the time years ago. Um, but it's called year of the Yao and it's a, it's a pretty good, uh, you know, hour and a half or so. Awesome. I want to move on, but do you just real quick, do you still stay in any kind of contact with him even every once in a while because you were with him for I so did- long? Yeah, I did for a number of years. We kind of lost contact, but he's he's the kind of guy that if I ever saw him anywhere, um, him and Dikembe Mutombo, who is another guy that I worked with, are are two guys that uh, uh, I I think the world of both of them, and and really, quite frankly, like you know, if, if I if I stumbled upon them anywhere in life, uh, I know that we'd uh, we'd pick up right where we left off, because um, we we went through so many things with with Yao and, and myself. I mean, I was really we had he had a, a small little you know five foot six american interpreter he was a kid right out of college his name was colin pine and uh when they told me that you know he's gonna have an interpreter i was like okay great and then i see this guy and i go this guy he used to work at the state department and he would like read different magazines and and things in chinese and then sort of work to to, to tell them you know if there's anything there of note i guess and, we've hired uh, spud webb to be the interpreter yeah. he's that size yeah with visualization and he was and he was super young and super green and super nervous about being on camera and all these things. It was, it was really an interesting time, but he's, he's a great guy. And he turned into, uh, you know, obviously after a few years of being with Yao, he moved on, but still stayed in the NBA. Love all of this. And I promised you, I was not going to keep you too long, but this is great stuff, Nelson. So now we segue from your time with the Houston Rockets. You come to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and there were some lean times and we've been working together for a long time where there was not a lot of winning and fired coaches And lo and behold, and we could go for an hour and maybe I'll have you back at some point with more on what happened, how it happened, and how the Tampa Bay Buccaneers parlayed getting Tom Brady into into a Super Bowl. But let's condense it into like five, six, seven minutes here if we can. So what is that like when the reality is setting in and you get a phone call in, in March of 2020? We have an agreement with Tom Brady during the pandemic craziness that had just started for the COVID-19 craziness of 2020. You get a phone call. This is going to happen. Tom Brady is not only not retiring, he's a free agent and he wants to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and he's agreed to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. What do you recollect and how much did you lean on having worked with Yao Ming and Tiger Woods with my Lord? Here we go now with number three with Tom Brady, the GOAT. Absolutely. No, it was, uh, you know, having an opportunity to work with Tom was, 
I would say it was a once in a lifetime thing because it really was. I mean, he is the greatest of all time at his position in, in our sport. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, I, I would say working with Yao uh, and, and even Tiger to a lesser extent because I was so young and, and didn't have the one on one experience with with Tiger as much as I had with Yao. I definitely leaned on those things. And uh, yeah, super exciting. Um, obviously, we had been, like you said, we'd gone through some lean years here. When I got back here in 2013, my first year back with the team, uh, we had some lean years. Didn't really know where, you know, where we were headed with, with uh, in terms of the on the field. Uh, obviously, we were just trying to find an identity. And all of a sudden, it's like the big bang. It just happened, right? Like overnight, like that, your world changes. Uh, and, you know, we were all, it's funny we were because- We all pretty much at home. So you're at home. And you get the call. What do you remember about that? Uh, you know, not a lot because it was <laughs> you, you, you kind of go blank. You know, all of a sudden you realize, again, sort of deja vu a little bit. You know, my life is going to change dramatically uh, and, and and trying to figure out how do we do this? You know, like when when the initial shock set off and, and obviously we're so excited um, to, to have an organization like ours land someone like that. Uh, that just puts you right back on the map and center stage. Uh, and it's it, it's an interesting time, right? I mean, we're all dealing with the pandemic. It, 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 things had just started closing, right? We had just started protocols and, and, and things of that nature that, that made that made you know an announcement like that challenging. Normally you would have a huge press conference and you'd want to make it a public event and you'd do everything. And we were stuck with trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? How do we do this? You know, like when we, when we finally were at the point where we could uh, pull off the, uh, the, uh, the, the introductory press conference. And um, there was a thing that we'd heard of. Uh, I had my staff, you know, check into it. And I was like, okay, what are, what are our options? We, we got to figure out how do we do this? And there's a thing called zoom. And I was like, I, I, I've never heard of this thing. It, it's, I, it, I can't, I can't, you know, this is my career on the line here. I mean, if, if somehow we try to do some sort of fancy video conference and, it, and, 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 and he freezes up or we lose audio or something, how do we possibly make this work? Uh, you know, and, 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 and get me to a comfort level to where we know it's going to work a hundred percent. Nothing can go wrong. It's gotta be a perfect um, media session. And I said, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not going to trust. We, we can't, we, we, we've got to go with old reliable, which, you know, was, was a phone call. Was the phone. <laughs> a conference call. Right. So it's conference I call. was so on that conference up. call with hundreds of others probably. And they were <clears> running <throat> your conference call, as you know, live on ESPN, live on CNN, live everywhere, because they were looking for news content of Tom Brady on the phone. Like we were back in the 80s, Nelson. We love it. Right. Right. So we were, I mean, had it had it been maybe even a couple of weeks after the whole thing had happened and Zoom had kind of people had a better, but I mean, you know, there were a lot of uh, questions about how, you know, how can you do these, these virtual press conferences? How do you control the number of questions? Who can ask? How do you, you know, all those types of questions that we just didn't know at the time. It was so, it was so new to us. So uh, we went with Old Reliable and the, and the, uh, the, the conference call, um, and that's how we we introduced the most, you know, mm. the, the biggest name in, in in our sport. That's how he was introduced way back, like 1980s style. <laughs> yeah. Thanks and to it's, the pandemic. And it's crazy that whole year. And again, we could go on for an hour about that whole year that ultimately without fans and with media on Zoom and Nelson was traveling with the players, one of the few traveling and interacting with the players and then trying to deal with the media virtually. The media is not there in a lot of cases and doing it. Uh, by by video, uh, we did every game that year, as you know, on radio at Raymond James Stadium. The home games, yes, but for the road games, we were doing the games off TV. 
And then we're sitting in those Zooms that you were running uh, at the site for the players, and that's the only chance that anybody's got to talk to the players. It was just surreal. It was crazy. And then it culminates with the craziest thing of all, which is the team puts together the win streak at the end of the regular season and in the postseason that makes it famous forever, which is a Super Bowl win the first year that Tom Brady shows up. And not just any Super Bowl win, a Super Bowl win with Tom Brady and in your own stadium where you grew up and I've lived for 40 years of my life. I've often shared this and I want this from you. I finally had a moment in the first half of Super Bowl 55 when Brady threw the touchdown right before the end of the half to Gronkowski in the end zone that's painted Buccaneers. And I'm looking and going, is that really Tom Brady? And is that really Rob Gronkowski in Buccaneer colors? And we're at Raymond James Stadium in the Super Bowl. That's the first moment where it was it almost was like a movie like you described before with Tiger. It doesn't make sense right now in that moment. Did you have one of those moments, and maybe it was that night or maybe it was a little earlier, where you're going, pinch me. Is this really happening? Listen, uh, I had that moment throughout that entire year. <laughs> it wasn't just the Super Bowl. Um, seeing those guys in Buccaneer colors, the, you know, the first time I saw them out on the field, uh, which, again, like you said, there were very few people that had access to those things, and, and I was one of them along with Michael Pahanek on my staff. We were the only two that were that had access to the players to, to pull off all of the media sessions and things that had to be done. Um, but what was amazing was uh, – yeah, that, that Super Bowl experience to me was absolutely a dream sequence um, for so many reasons. Just uh, professionally in my career, you know, that's the that's the ultimate goal. Um, I had never even come close to a, a championship. Quite frankly, had you know, in the NBA, we were always good enough to win like a series and then lose. So we'd never get it past the second round. But to have something like that, to have a team catch fire like that, uh, you know, we were, I think we were at seven and five and I remember thinking, well, maybe we should lose one of these couple last games here just to like not have to pull off an entire run of, of eight in a row <laughs> to, to, to win it all. You know, I mean, what are the odds that we're going to win eight games in a row? And guess what? We did it, you know, and that was, um, you know, that Super Bowl Sunday to me was something that, uh, we, we were staying at the Grand Hyatt, uh, which is what was the team hotel that the league had put us in. And I woke up early that day. Of course, I couldn't sleep. And just walking around the grounds and just thinking about, you know, for so many years I thought about what this day was going to feel like, and here it was. And then getting to the stadium and being, quite frankly, almost like a visitor at the stadium because as a as a, a PR guy for a team in the game, you're not, you know, and, and, and that year especially, I wasn't even in the press box because I was a member of the team. And because I was a member of the team, I had to sit in an area, and so did the the Chiefs PR folks, had to sit in an area behind the end zone, basically. So they, they built these, like, uh, in the south end zone, they built these these temporary boxes that they had our our, our, our extra players in, as well as the, the PR folks in a separate little box because everything had to be separated and everything. So I'm COVID watching concerns, it. Almost, social yeah, distancing, and, all the things yeah. that we went through. Because our natural radio booth, and you knew this, was was being overtaken to put coaches in and they weren't even right. allowing us in the actual press box. We were in an auxiliary room at the other end of the stadium. It's bizarre. Right. It's crazy, but we lived social it. distancing. And, and yeah, it all the social out. distancing took over. And it no, worked it out. It was uh it was it amazing, was amazing that night. Uh again, compare it as best as you want, dealing with Tiger Woods, then Yao Ming, then Tom Brady. Again, you you are as unique, I gotta believe, as anybody that's ever dealt with that. Uh, certainly Yao Ming and then Tom Brady, 
Uh, what what was it like to, I mean, the media crush, the requests, and dealing with Tom Brady, uh, I, I won't answer for you. So what was it like? It was it was an incredible part of my career, and it's, uh, you know, one of those crowning moments when, when you're working with someone like that. Uh, first of all, I loved my interactions with Tom. Um, you know, I, when someone comes in after 20 years in the league, uh, they come in with their own rules and their own sort of way of doing thing. And you're not going to change certain certain things uh, because it's worked for him. Right. And he was, uh, you know, he's the best that's ever done it. Uh, so really just sort of working with him and alongside him and having a few conversations with him along the way early on, trying to sort of set the tone a little bit and trying to figure out with him, like, you know, how to like do things. Uh, he was always amazing with, as you well know, these players that had to do these uh, production meetings before games with the broadcast networks. And I was always astounded at how how incredibly good he was in terms of giving time uh, to these guys. He's been doing it for 23 years by the time he was done, 23 years of this. And I'm telling you, he would give them 20 to 25 minutes sometimes. Uh, and it was amazing to, to see because – a lot of these guys, after a few years, they're giving them just sort of standard answers, and, and that's it. But Tom would would really kind of understood the importance of of those interactions. And uh, these guys are going to talk about your team for the next three three and a half hours. Um, so he would he would he would give them his time. And uh, I think that that's one of the things I really really appreciated about him was you knew that he wasn't going to say yes to a lot of things, um, but when you had a good reason or something that was important, he would always hear you out. Um, it was being a gatekeeper for someone like that was a 24 hour a day, seven day a week job uh, because there were always requests coming in, sometimes from the league, sometimes from all the networks. And, you know, every network thinks that, you know, they're the most important one. Right. I of mean, course. you know, you go from NBC to ABC to ESPN. It doesn't matter who it is. They're all, you know, that week, that's the most important game for them. And they want to make sure they put on a great uh, show. And putting on a great show means what can we get with Tom Brady, you know? And so I think that those just setting those expectations, working through that, it, it really sort of, you know, again, I'd already been in this, in this business for over 25 years. Um, but those three years, I learned so much. You always learn uh, things in this business because no, no two days are the same in, in the sports world. There's always something happening that, uh, you know, that, that, that changes the the narrative and that, that as a PR person, you have to sort of chase after and, uh, with Tom, obviously, this past you know last year they had there, there were some things that he was dealing with that sure. uh, that really kind of, you know, really made you understand like, wow, you know, I mean, he would still give these guys twenty five minutes uh, before these games, um, even though we knew that he was going through some some difficult times. Amazing, amazing time that he was here. I did not ever believe he was going to play anywhere other than New England, much less did I believe he was going to play for the team that I rooted for long before I worked for him. And then you win a Super Bowl out of all of it. Uh, it's crazy. And listen, you've been great. You've been fantastic telling me stories uh, here on this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing so much. You had so much to share. I prop you up again. Uh, who's going to top? I'm just putting this out there, working media relations-wise with Tiger, Yao, and then Tom Brady in his career. You should write the book. You should have a book about that and about dealing with it and the stuff you talked about on this podcast. I say this with affection and looking forward to it. I look forward to seeing you a bunch coming up because it's about to be that time with Buccaneer training camp, NFL training camps everywhere, and the season's about to be here. It's the Buccaneers' first in four years without Tom Brady. We'll see what it looks like. But listen, you were great. You were great with me to share these stories. You gave me so much time. Very generous with that. Thank you, Nelson. I, I, I sincerely do appreciate it. 
Absolutely happy to help. And, uh, you know, like I said, sometimes you don't, I don't even think my, my life is that exciting or uh, there are so many things, but I, you know, I, I, I agree with you there. It, it is a pretty neat thing to have uh, sort of that trifecta of athletes to have worked with. Um, and it's been, uh, you know, it was a pleasure coming on here and, and going over and reliving some of my career with you. Once more, tremendous stuff. Nelson Luis, Vice President of Communications for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for the past now 11 seasons, and it's the first year PB post-Brady, but it's now, I guess, newbie, Baker. Baker Mayfield, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Vita Vea, Levante David, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers of 2023 will hit the field coming up. And again, as I was just saying, I, I hope you enjoyed the diversity and the stories of being with Tiger, Yao, and then with Tom Brady and all of those different interactions, it's uh, it's amazing to contemplate being uh, with those. Okay, so let's wind it down on this edition of The Last Word on a Sports Media Podcast. A couple of quick things. Number one, the Wimbledon men's final. Thrilling as it was with Carlos Alcarez's victory. Uh, Alcarez defeating uh, Novak Djokovic and denying him another Wimbledon championship was watched by over 3 million people on ESPN this past weekend. Again, Wimbledon, the whole breakfast at Wimbledon thing that used to go on, and again, I'm older, in the 80s and the 90s, would regularly have 10 or 15 million people watching at the height. Part of it is the lack of an American being in there. We had the days of McEnroe and Connors in the 80s that morphed into Jim Courier, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi. After that, we really haven't. We've been devoid. Yes, there's been Andy Roddick in the late 90s and early 2000s, but not much else for American tennis for there to be interest. And obviously the women's final uh, on Saturday saw an audience of, uh, of what just uh, um, for the women, just over a million that watched. And again, without Serena Williams, when Serena was last in this women's final in 2019, there were two and a half million. So they had just over a million three for the win by Marketa Vondrasova. Uh, who ended up winning the Wimbledon Championship for 2023. So a couple of other things. Uh, Obviously, the Women's World Cup coverage will begin later on this week from New Zealand and Australia. The United States team heavily favored. This is group play, the U.S. opening with Vietnam. And not unlike the 2019 Women's World Cup, you wonder if the United States will get to the point in one of these early round games, especially with a Vietnam, where our players are so much more skilled and uh, so much better a team that you've almost got to have the mercy rule. Will they score eight goals, nine goals, 10 goals or more in a, in a sport that usually you get one or two goals, sometimes two or three goals in victory. Uh, the ladies are the two time defending champs. They are the prohibitive favorites. Uh, and the, and this gets much more interesting after the group stage, the U S is going to advance out of the group stage. It gets much more interesting in the single elimination on, on what happens uh, for the women's national team, which has had far more success and done a far better job uh, than what the men's team obviously has ever been able to do. Men's team can't even seemingly get into the final four, much less the championship match of a World Cup, much less win it. The women have now won it, won the whole thing the last two years and are, or the last two times and are the prohibitive favorites. I'm also interested in the Open Championship or the British Open. We were talking golf with Nelson. The names are not Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Uh, of the late 90s and the early 2000s. It's now John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, the live golfers of uh, Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, the top the top players uh, from around the world playing at Royal Liverpool or Hoy Lake, as it's called, 
uh, where Rory McIlroy won the British Open the last time that it was there. McIlroy, nine years since his last major win, by the way. Uh, is the drought about to end? Will it be Rom winning the Open Championship for the first time? Will it be someone else? That coverage, again, is part of NBC, the USA Network, and Peacock, not unlike the coverage of the U.S. Open in golf that took place from Los Angeles back a few weeks ago in June. And again, it's interesting. This event used to be kind of like Breakfast at Wimbledon, so much of a morning time event. Uh, playing out live, the Royal and Ancient, the RNA, would play it out live in the late morning U.S. time. Well, now they have spaced it to the point because you have so much daylight in Europe and in the U.K., they've spaced it to the point where this is still an early afternoon finish in the Eastern and Central time zones, not an, not a morning finish, that you can basically, in the Eastern time zones, go have uh, your religious service, go go have brunch, go have go do whatever, and still catch all of the meaningful golf over the next three hours or four hours into the one Eastern time and two Eastern time hour. This thing used to be over with before noon Eastern time and, and much earlier, obviously, if you're in the mountain and Western time zones, Pacific time zone, et cetera. But the British Open will play out and we'll see how it does on the coverage uh, for this weekend. How will it play out, uh, If especially if the stars are up there at the top? We saw a a, uh, a younger player in Wyndham Clark outduel Ricky Fowler and Rory McIlroy in Los Angeles. Brooks Kepka won his fifth major just before that at the PGA Championship, and John Rahm outdueling Brooks Kepka at the Masters. So this is the final major of the year. What happens at the longest running major championship, the Open Championship, coming later on this week? So we'll we'll keep our eyes on all of that again. Uh, one more time, thank you to Nelson Luis with me on the Last Word on Sports Media podcast. Here, uh, you've already heard. Uh, on this podcast feed from George Offman and his Tell Me a Story I Don't Know podcast. Again, Doug Glanville is the guest for this week talking playing Major League Baseball and now broadcasting Major League Baseball and even teaching uh, broadcasting and media classes with the University of Connecticut. So hear that interview just before this podcast on this feed. And then Mike Gill and Phil demont Mollen with the Announcer Schedules podcast as well. We give you all kinds of, uh, of different perspectives. Those guys are talking all the time about who does it well in the broadcast calls. Again, whether uh, in this week's case, it's the U.S. Uh, women's national team going for the uh, the World Cup, the golf, the Major League Baseball, NFL training camps that are opening up. There's never a shortage. Uh, Motorsports, on and on down the list with all the different things. Even pickleball might make it on announcer schedules with Mike and Phil on this podcast. feed. Make sure you're following. Make sure you're subscribing. Find out more at lastwordonsports.com slash podcast as well. Uh, we are out every week, even through the summer. Football almost here. I'm TJ Reeves. Thank you for being with me. My thanks again to my guest, my guest Nelson Luis, the Vice President of Communications of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, formerly with the uh, Director of Communications with the Houston Rockets and former PGA Tour uh, media staff member as well, working with Tiger, Yao, and Tom Brady, the GOAT. Uh, for now, we are good. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon on the Last Word on Sports Media Podcast. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.